So as you're aware, we'll be looking at the transfiguration of Jesus this morning. We're in Luke chapter 9. We're going to start with verse 27, one verse prior to the transfiguration account. And we'll be going through verses 36. Those that have been gathering here at CCF regularly, you know that we've been in Luke for a while now. Luke chapter 9, more specifically, since the end of November. And so this morning, as an introduction, instead of looking for a a catchy story to get your attention, to try to point to the transfiguration account, I'm going to use our introductory time to catch you back up where we've been leading up to the transfiguration, as well as a couple points that have been preached already after the transfiguration. So hopefully, since we're skipped over this account, we can go back and have a little bit of a refresher. <clears throat> we won't be able to look at everything in chapter 9, but we're going to focus on some highlights. And before we do, <clears throat> I've entitled this sermon, The Transfiguration. No surprise. The subtitle is The Glory of God Revealed in the Son. The Glory of God Revealed in the Son. <clears throat> I want us to be thinking about that idea from the outset. Not as a surprise in the middle of the sermon, but from the very beginning, God is revealing his son's divinity. God is speaking into the identity of Jesus. And as we'll talk about in just a moment, we've heard this question asked several times. Who is this? At the end of chapter 8, the disciples, after the calming of the storm, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Several other times leading up to this account, we hear that same question. So today, we are going to see that question answered again by the Father. So the glory of God revealed in the Son and Christ's identity revealed by the Father. As a background and as a catch-up, we remember from the first passage in chapter 9, we have Jesus sending out the twelve. He sends them out with power and a purpose, and it's to cure diseases, cast out demons, and to proclaim the good news of Jesus. So they go and they do that. This is the first time that he's kicked them out of the nest on their own to go and be a part of this ministry and this work by themselves. Then we hear about a man named Herod, a tetrarch, and he asked that question again. Who is this? I hear these things about. He's heard reports about what's going on, and he asked the question, who is this? And you may remember the response was, well, some people say it's Elijah, some John the Baptist, and some a prophet of old who's been raised from the dead. He's none of those, by the way. And then we continue on with the feeding of the 5,000. We talked about the miraculous provision of bread for those who were gathered in that desolate place, a miracle that only Jesus could perform. And we briefly mentioned in that sermon this idea of Jesus as a greater Moses. We're going to revisit that. And you might be saying, well, where does that come from? If you think back to the Exodus account, the Lord provided manna for his people as they wandered through the wilderness to the promised land. And many commentators and scholars would say this is the beginnings of, or at least mentions, parallels between Jesus as a greater Moses, him leading his people out of slavery to sin into the promised land of eternity. So we'll, we'll get there again in a moment. Jesus as a greater Moses. After this, Jesus begins to tell his disciples that he's going to suffer. He's going to die and he's going to be raised again. Now, it's not mentioned in a Luke account, but in the Matthew account, this is where Peter inserts foot into mouth. We'll see that again today. He says, Jesus, you're not going to suffer. It actually says in the Gospel of Matthew, he rebuked Jesus. He rebuked Jesus. You're not going to suffer. And what does Jesus say? You likely have heard this. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Your mind is not on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
I mentioned that because we are going to see evidences of that continuing on. The disciples are seeing Jesus walking alongside him. They're hearing what he's saying, but they don't quite get it yet. Then he turns a corner and speaks more specifically to them, not only about his suffering, but Pastor Eric preached on his disciples, Jesus' disciples are going to have to take up their crosses to follow him. And the cross, as we know, is not just a comforting reminder. Uh, it's it's a, a reminder of Christ's resurrection for us. But back then, they would have thought about suffering and torture. It, it wasn't a convenient or comfortable word that Jesus gave to them. After that, it leads us to the transfiguration. Luke 9, 28 through 36. I do want to make one more point. J.R. Gilhuli, after the transfiguration account, preached on a demon being cast out of a boy. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about that demon. We talked about what came after that. Jesus telling them yet again to listen. In 9, 44 and 45, Jesus says, let these words sink into your ears. Why do you think he said that? Because they don't get it yet. In verse 45, it actually confirms that and says they didn't understand what he was saying and they were even afraid to ask him. So they've heard it. Peter's confessed it, but he doesn't quite fully get what's going on. And that's where we'll pick up. I have a brief outline, if we could show that. We have the setting of the stage. We're just going to look at two verses, 27 and 28, to, to get us kind of caught back up to speed on where we are, who's involved, what's going on in this transfiguration account. And then I've broken the passage up into four sections. The sun's glory is revealed. The sun's greatness is to be understood. The son's follower doesn't get it, and the son's father responds. Now, along the way, I'm going to try to mention some brief points of application, but at the end, we're really going to try to hone in on a main idea of this being the identity of Jesus confirmed and affirmed by the father. The disciples get to see his glory, but the father comes in the cloud, and he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So God is affirming the sonship of Jesus. So let's jump right into setting the stage, verses 27 and 28. Read with me. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until the kingdom, until they see the kingdom of God. And now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Now the reason we started with verse 27, you might remember Pastor Eric he had said that there are many scholars and commentators who would believe, and I would lean towards this as well, we're going to speak in light of this fact or potential. Verse 27 says, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come. Many would say that they're actually referring to the transfiguration. It's going to take place in the very next verse. So the some of you who won't taste death, that's talking about Peter and James and John who are about to go up this mountain with Jesus to witness this account. We'll speak back into that later. Keep that in mind. And then we pick up with verse 28. And we get to see the characters who are involved, and we're also going to see some others appear. So I kind of went back to an elementary school lesson. When you're looking at a sentence or reading a passage, you have the who, what, when, where, and why. I think there's even a how, but I didn't include that. The who here, we have Jesus going up the mountain with the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. We're also going to see an appearance of Moses and Elijah. We'll spend a good bit of time talking about those two individuals. And then the Father is going to come and speak through uh, this cloud that descends upon those who are gathered there on top of the mountain. When, it says it clearly in verse 28, about eight days after these sayings, these sayings referring to verse 27, and the where and the why, it's potentially on Mount Hermon, 
Now, it's not as important as what mountain in particular that this took place on. What's more important is what happened on that mountain. And then we have the why. Well, we know that it says specifically it's to go up and pray. We'll see, as we've just heard Kate read, a lot more happens on top of this mountain than just prayer. So let me begin. As I said, I'm going to try to briefly mention some sub-points of application along the way. It will be helpful to remind you at this point in time, this isn't the first time we see Jesus praying. It won't be the last. We won't go into each of these accounts, but I thought it was interesting that it was pointed out as I was studying and preparing Prior to or in the midst of significant events that unfold in the life of Jesus, we see in Luke's account, Jesus is praying. You can look back to Luke 3, Luke 4, Luke 9, where we're at today, even forward to Luke 22. We have Jesus praying at his baptism, praying prior to the calling of his disciples, praying prior to his public ministry beginning. He's praying prior to the ascension of the mountain and the transfiguration. And he's also going to be praying later in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to his capture. And again, not the main focal point, but worth mentioning as we're walking through this book for a while, Luke emphasizes the importance of prayer. And I don't think it's hard to encourage you or remind you of the importance of God's believers praying. Now, we we don't always know what's around the corner like Jesus does, but we can see throughout Luke's gospel the importance of his people praying. Now that the stage has been set, let's look at point number one. The sun's glory is revealed. We're going to spend a predominant amount of time on points one and two, just as a heads up. So if you're looking at your watch like, man, we're only halfway through. We have two more points. We'll move through the last couple points a little quicker, not because that they're, they're less important, but we're going to spend a good bit of time on points one and two. So look with me at verse 29. And as he, Jesus, was praying, notice it doesn't say as all the disciples were praying, It says, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Now, I want to make sure everyone hears me say this. Well, I wish Luke had said more, but I know that Scripture is sufficient. We have everything in God's Word that he intended for us to have. It's authoritative. It's inerrant. This is where we learn about God, learn about his purposes for us. But I'll be honest, I was left wanting more. The glory of God being revealed in the sun on top of a mountain. And Luke, the doctor, says his face changed in appearance and his clothes became dazzling white. So I'm going to borrow from our friends Matthew and Mark who also record this account. If you want to take a side note, top of your page, bottom of the page. Matthew 17, Mark 9. We're not going to read through those accounts, but we are going to borrow from them because these brothers try to add a little bit more using the best words that they can to try to describe what they see. This is another reason I didn't do an introduction story. How do you prepare folks for a sermon on the glory of God being revealed on the sun? You can't. All the stories, all the analogies pale in comparison. But let's look and see what Matthew and Mark have to say. In addition to his face being altered and his clothing becoming dazzling white, Matthew says that he was transfigured, which is where we get the sermon title. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. Mark says something similar. He was transfigured before them. And he tries to focus a little more on the clothing. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And this reminded me of a passage from Hebrews where it says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. His clothes are are radiant, Now, I did hear and read uh, about someone trying to use the caterpillar turning into a butterfly as a helpful story here. And although that is something really cool, there is a transformation that's taking place. 
that could lead you to believe something that's not true, that something in Jesus' nature is changing, and it's not. I want to make sure that we hear that leading up to the transfiguration, during the transfiguration, and after and still today and for all of eternity and since the beginning of time, Jesus has and is and always will be the Son of God. When he came to earth in the flesh, the incarnation, he was fully God and he was fully man. He did not gain more God nature as his glory was being revealed. When, when his glory had been revealed and they're coming back down the mountain, he was not a lesser amount of God. He always has been, always is, and always will be God. Fully God, fully man as he walked this earth. Well, what's going on? I think the easiest way to explain it would be an unveiling of what's already there. This is a miraculous moment for these disciples, a pulling back of the curtain, and they get to see with their eyes the glory that's being revealed. And we know as Christians, a lot of times we don't have experiences like this, and that's okay. We're going to talk about that later. We have his word, which is miraculous. But we think about the glory of God being revealed in the sun, this pulling back of the curtain, they get to see something with their eyes. We know from Hebrews chapter 11, what does it say? Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. These disciples get to see with their eyes what they've been hearing with their ears. One commentator was saying that so many things are going on here about Christ's identity being revealed and affirmed by the Father, but this is also an encouragement to these disciples who were with him on this journey to Jerusalem. We get to do the 30,000 foot view. Remember, we know what's gonna happen in Jerusalem, his death, burial, and resurrection. The disciples are hearing things about suffering in his death and being raised from the dead, but they don't get it. They're, they're, they're not quite seeing the full picture, but this is meant to encourage them, anchor them in their faith for the hard journey that's gonna lie ahead. Some of the adversities that they're gonna see later this is meant to help encourage them seeing the glory of God revealed in the sun as they continue on this journey to Jerusalem with Jesus. So the sun's glory is revealed on top of this mountain. And now we'll move to point two. The sun's greatness is to be understood. Now, I could have just said Jesus is greater. That wouldn't have fit well with the other points, but that's what I want you to be thinking about. Jesus is greater. And I'll explain that further when we look at verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So not only was Jesus transfigured in his glory seen by these disciples, two others appeared in glory, Moses and Elijah. We're going to unpack a lot here. This is a really awesome part of this passage. Do any of those names sound familiar? Hopefully one does. Do you remember that question that was being asked, who is this Jesus? What were the three options? Elijah, John the Baptist, or a prophet of old raised from the dead. We've got one of them, word for word. Elijah's there. We've got Moses. Which category does he fall into? A prophet of old who's been raised from the dead. And you're like, well, Taylor, your point would be a lot better if John the Baptist was up there. Well, I would not disagree. But again, we have all that we need in Scripture. And we're going to lean into Matthew and Mark at the end of their account. As they come down the mountain after the transfiguration account, guess who they're talking about? John the Baptist. You can look at that later, some of the small groups that uh, do sermon review. That might be a path you want to go down and, and read a little bit more on that. But we have Elijah. We have a prophet of old raised from the dead on top of the mountain. And then when they descend from it, Matthew and Mark record there's a conversation going on between these disciples and Jesus about John the Baptist. So two things here. One is obvious. Jesus is none of them. 
We know that. But again, if this is meant to encourage and affirm things in the eyes of these disciples, another reminder. Hey, these options that we're giving, he's none of them. Second point, a much greater one. He's not only not any of them, he's greater than all of them. He doesn't explicitly say that right here in this patches, which, which is why I said the son's greatness is to be understood. Let's unpack this a little bit. John the Baptist, he says it himself. He's not even worthy to untie the straps of the sandals of Jesus. Right? Moses and Elijah, we'll spend a little bit of time here. I hope these slides are helpful. Hopefully you can see them. If not, let me just share with you. There's a slide. We have two mountains. We have Moses and Elijah. Moses is meant to represent the law. Okay, we know him from the Old Testament, goes up to Mount Sinai, gets the Ten Commandments. He's not only a prophet, he's not only the one leading the people out of slavery into the promised land, he's a representation of the law. And now we have Elijah representing the prophets. Now we won't turn to these passages, you could jot them down if you want and look at them later, but you have Exodus 24 and 33 through 34, and you could also jot down 1 Kings 18 and 19. What's significant about those? Well, you see those mountains there on the slide, hopefully you can see those. Moses has gone up a mountain and had an encounter with God. Elijah, there was a showdown on top of Mount Carmel. Elijah and the prophets of Baal, awesome Old Testament story. Elijah also has an encounter with the Lord at the mouth of a cave on a mountain. And so there, there's some parallels. So remember I said it wasn't as important as to what mountain it was, but the fact that there's something significant taking place on the mountain, there's some direct parallels here. Let's just focus in a little deeper on Moses, but we can go to the next slide. I tried to highlight the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, has arrived. He's on scene. There's something else that God is wanting to show these disciples and us. Jesus is greater you can look at Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, and I'm going to read some select verses from that passage. There's actually a title there, and again, those are not Holy Spirit inspired. Okay, those were added later, the headings in our Bibles. But it's entitled, Jesus Greater Than Moses, Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. But what I wanted to do is highlight the fact that Jesus is now on top of this mountain, a greater Moses, a greater Elijah, moved to the forefront, the others fading and paling in comparison. Again, I'll, I'll get to Hebrews 3 in just a moment, but think about this. Moses, in the Old Testament, goes up a mountain. Jesus is now going up a mountain. Moses has an interaction with the Lord, with a cloud that descends. Jesus is on top of the mountain, and we're gonna see in a moment a cloud descending. Moses and Jesus are on top of this mountain, and Jesus is not only not Moses, he's greater than Moses. A fulfillment of the law, a fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophets have pointed forward to, the coming of the Messiah, King Jesus. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, it says that his face shone. His face was shining as a result of the encounter he had with God. Some will maybe say then that's Moses reflecting the glory of God. And here in the transfiguration account, we have Jesus revealing the glory that he possesses in his nature as God. So again, looking to Hebrews 3, a few verses I want to mention. Listen to this. Jesus greater than Moses. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses and Elijah weren't the only ones that talked about the coming of the Savior, King Jesus. 
I was reading a commentary by David Platt. He was doing an exposition of the Transfiguration account in the book of Matthew, and I hope these slides could also be helpful. We'll go through these three pretty quickly. Moses represented the law and reflected divine glory. Elijah represented the prophets and proclaimed divine glory. And Jesus is now a fulfillment of the law and the prophets and now reveals divine glory. How awesome is that? He's come to fulfill all that the law has required and has come to fulfill all that the prophets have prophesied about. He's here. The hero is on scene. The Messiah who's been prophesied about is here. And the disciples get to see it. We'll continue on with the second point. The son's greatness is to be understood. Not only was he a greater Moses and a greater Elijah, I want to focus in on two more things before we move to point three. Luke is the only one who records the conversation going on between Moses and Elijah. So earlier when I said, come on, Luke, give us a little more, he does it here. Matthew and Mark don't talk about the conversation or the content of it. Luke says they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. There's a lot there in that short little section of words. We've already mentioned they're on this journey to Jerusalem. Pastor Eric last week talked about the drum roll that's started in the background as they descend the mountain and head towards the Jerusalem. Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, there's the slow drum beat, right? We know where they're going, but look at this. When it says they spoke of his departure, I'm no Greek scholar. I'm not an expert at all. Uh, pretty bad at it, actually, if I'm being honest. I'm in a class right now, and it's a struggle, but I had a good conversation with someone who is a scholar in Greek and knows it much better than I do, and so I wanted to confirm what I was reading by some authors just to make sure I didn't stand up here and say something that wasn't accurate, and it is accurate. Listen to this. When it says departure, if you look at the Greek, that's where we get our word exodus from. How awesome is that? We've just been talking about Moses in the book of Exodus, Moses leading God's people out of physical slavery from Egypt to the promised land, continuing on with the point that Jesus is a greater Moses, leading his people, those who profess faith in him and surrender their lives to him, they are being led out of a spiritual bondage to sin, a spiritual slavery, on our way to a promised land, which is eternity in heaven with the Lord forever. Jesus is the greater Moses. They're speaking of his departure, his exodus, so to speak. They're talking about what's going to happen at Jerusalem. And this is a word that would be so easy to look over. This is why we want to be careful to slowly walk through scripture when we read it. Personal devotions, just looking at all the words that we have. After it says what they were speaking about, his departure, listen to this. Which he was about to what? Accomplish. Not accidentally stumble upon, not fight against and fail and it just happens. He was on his way to Jerusalem to accomplish what the Father had sent him to earth to do. How awesome is that? I understand that there may be some in here who don't know Jesus and I, I want to speak to you in a moment. But for those of you who do, who are children of God, this should excite you and stir your heart's affections for him. We can sometimes become numb to the things that we're familiar with. This should be something that we get excited about. It made me think of John 10, 14 through 18. Again, I'm going to read parts of those verses. This is the section entitled, I'm the Good Shepherd. Listen to this. Keep in mind, he's going to Jerusalem to accomplish his death and burial and resurrection. Listen to this. I am the Good Shepherd, and I laid down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father who is about to enter the scene here in just a moment. For those of you who are sheep in his fold already, I've mentioned this, this should be something that we rejoice in. Like we remember as we pass the elements out, we're remembering Christ's broken body and shed blood. When we see things in scripture that we're very familiar with, we should try not to become numb, to just gloss over it and move along. He laid his life down as a living sacrifice So that one day when we stand before a holy God, we can be seen as righteous as his son was, not by the works that we've done on earth, not by any amount of money that we paid, but by the sweet gift of grace that we've been given. Our eyes being unveiled to the beauty of the gospel, our hearts being softened to Christ's sacrifice and our need for him as a savior. And it's by grace we've been saved through faith and we should get excited about that. And those of you in here that have not come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, just for a moment, I want to speak to you. You are not in that sheepfold of God. But what does he say? He talks about how those he wants to bring into his fold. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. I would encourage you to think through and listen carefully today when we talk about this is not just a man, this is not just a storybook. These are the events that have unfolded that God has through the Holy Spirit inspired men to write for us to have an account of the things that have taken place and the things that are going to take place in the future. This is how we know him. And if this is true, the Bible says that one day you will stand before the judgment throne of God. And this is not meant to scare or intimidate. I mentioned this when I was preaching the the, the initial sermon from chapter 9. One day we'll stand before the judgment throne of God. And if you have not professed faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if what the Bible says is true and we believe that it is, it says you'll spend eternity apart from him in hell forever. But if you would realize you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that Savior is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, the Christ of God, the Son of the living God, the prophesied about Messiah who's come, who's died on the cross, he's died to save you from those sins that separate you from God. That when you do stand before the judgment throne one day, if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I just want you to think about that. I would encourage you to ask someone afterwards, myself, I'll stick around up front. If you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I've been praying that the Lord would work on your heart today. That soon and very soon, because we don't know when his return comes, that you would turn and surrender your life to his Lordship, the Son of God. And now we'll, we'll continue to move on with point three. The Son's follower doesn't get it. You might be thinking, Taylor, you said that there were three disciples that went up the mountain. Yes, we could say that the followers don't get it. Remember chapter 9, verse 45, Jesus talked about his suffering. It says they didn't understand and were afraid to ask him. But we're going to pick on Peter for a moment. We've already talked about in Matthew when he says to Jesus, you're not going to suffer. And he says, get behind me, Satan. He has another moment where he kind of sticks his foot in his mouth. Let's, Let's read forward and then talk about what could be going on here. Verses 32 and 33. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Remember, Jesus was praying, and then he was transfigured. Here's what these three are doing. They're sleeping. 
Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And we've already talked about that. But listen to this. And as the men were parting from him, they were leaving, scenes over. And as the men were parting from him, Peter decides to worship King Jesus. Nope. Peter decides to open his mouth very quickly. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And if we didn't have it already in the back of our minds, it says for us, Peter, not knowing what he had said. He sees this event unfolding, wakes up from his sleep and slumber, should have been praying. At least that's what we see in verse 28. He sees the glory of God being revealed in the sun with his eyes, and instead of bowing down and worshiping, he talks. James gives us good words of wisdom, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Peter doesn't do either. Peter decides to say, wait a minute, guys, I know you're leaving, but let's make three tents. What could be going on here? I'll just be honest, it doesn't say more than this. This is what we have, but let's talk about a couple things that could be going on. Because in the end, when the cloud comes down and then goes back up, guess what we don't have? We don't have three tents. So for whatever his intentions were, he wasn't even heard. And in a moment, he's actually going to be interrupted. It says, as he was saying these things, the cloud comes down. He was interrupted as if to say, Peter, shh, like, listen, keep your eyes open. What could be going on? As I was reading through some scholars who spent a lot of time studying these books, one thing could be that he is potentially trying to put Jesus on an equal playing ground as Moses and Elijah, which we've already spent a significant amount of time talking about how he's not only not them, but greater than them. So we won't say much more than that. If that's what's going on, Peter has some bad theology. Another thing that could be going on, and this is another reason why I started with verse 27. What does it say in 27? Some of you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming. And if indeed the transfiguration is the coming of the kingdom of God, could it be that this Jew, these Jews who heard about the prophesied Messiah, who were really excited about the fact that he's here, have their eyes fixed on this new reign, this new kingdom, this new coming kingdom that they just, they just heard about this about eight days ago, it says. About eight days after these sayings, the transfiguration account happens. Peter's just heard Jesus say, some of you won't taste death until you see the kingdom of God come. If it's the transfiguration, could it be that Peter is trying to say, wait a minute, guys, don't leave. Don't leave. Let's set up three tents. Let's hang out a while. Let's have this new kingdom ushered in right here, right now. Peter seems to have his eyes focused on what? The crown and not the cross. Pastor Eric alluded to that last week in his sermon. They both are in scripture, the cross and the crown. Peter's already said to Jesus, you're not going to suffer. Get behind me, Satan. He doesn't get it. The cross has to come. It's part of the plan. Yes, the future glory will come. We'll have new resurrected glorified bodies one day. We'll get to see Jesus in the fullness of his glory in heaven one day. But Peter, it seems as though he could potentially be saying, let's bring this new kingdom in. Now, some would try to let Peter off the hook and say that this is a reference back to Leviticus 23 and the Feast of Booths and how he's trying to have this celebration. Either way, even if that's the case, that celebration's seven days long. So he's saying, hey, let's hold up. Let's stick around a while. All right. And again, what happens? The cloud comes down, goes back up. No tents. They head back down the mountain. Peter, shh, be quiet. He didn't know what he said. He was heavy with sleep, should have been praying, sees the glory of God being revealed in the sun and just blurts this out. Now, before we beat up on Peter too much, 
We do the same things, maybe in a different way. Granted, none of us have been on top of a mountain and seen Jesus and his glory being revealed, but in a moment, we're gonna hear God say, this is my son whom I love, my chosen one, listen to him. How often do we show up on a Sunday or if we're reading our Bibles throughout the week as we seek to listen to him through the word, do we quickly just read and forget what we read and move on with our day? I think it's said in scripture, like looking into a mirror and forgetting what you just saw. We do the same thing. Sometimes we'll read scripture and we want to massage it a little bit and tweak it and change it to where it's a little more comfortable and a a little more appetizing. Oh, I don't know if that's really what that's saying. Let's make this a little more culturally relevant. We need to listen to Jesus. But another point I'd like to make is think back to the beginning of chapter 9. What did Jesus do? He sent them out. We talked about about two and a half months ago the importance of us being his sent out disciples, being a part of the Great Commission. There's work to be done. Right, Jesus and them descend the mountain, and right when they get down, they heal a boy with a demon. They're back at it again on the journey to Jerusalem. Similar to us, we shouldn't just sit around and twiddle our thumbs until the time on earth for us is over or the Lord returns to bring us home. There's work to be done. Right? Bringing God glory through many means, obedience to his word, fellowship with other believers, fellowshipping and worshiping on Sundays with our brothers and sisters in Christ and all throughout the week, but also being a part of that great commission where his sent out disciples were to be on mission, not just sitting back waiting on the new kingdom to come, this promised land that we've read about and know about and put our hope in. There's work to be done. They don't actually address Peter, but again, we realize that he is basically interrupted, which leads us into our fourth point. The son's father responds. Let's look at verses 32 and 33. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. There's a few points I'd like to emphasize. We've actually been talking about this fourth point all along in the sermon, which is one of the reasons why we'll go through it a little bit quicker. But regarding this cloud, in case some of you are wondering, wait a second, how do you know that that's the Father? And I would just say, if you want to jot down, do some study on your own, there's a few references there. It's probably smaller font, but let me read them for you. Exodus 13, Exodus 19, Exodus 40, or 1 Kings 8. These are all references in the Old Testament of God's presence and his glory filling a place or a cloud being present. A couple of those, just to to mention, as those people of God are being brought through the wilderness into the promised land, you have God leading them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. We've already talked about Moses going up on the mountain, having an encounter with God. A cloud comes down. That's what's happening here as well. This is signifying the Father's presence. He comes and he speaks and he puts an exclamation point. An exclamation point, not the final exclamation point. He puts an exclamation point on answering the question, who is this Jesus? God comes and with his audible voice, they've not only got to hear it through Jesus, see it with their eyes, now they get to hear it from the Father. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This would be a climactic point, not only in this passage, but in this gospel. The Father is affirming the identity of his son, Jesus Christ, as the Messiah. I appreciate my brother, Nick Runlet, who mentioned earlier this week as I was saying, man, I want to emphasize this is the exclamation point on answering that question. And he helpfully reminded me, make sure we say it's an exclamation point, not the exclamation point, because there's more to come in Luke. 
after his death and burial in Jerusalem. He's resurrected from the dead and sitting right now at the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven. That will be another exclamation point that continues to affirm his identity, fulfilling what the prophecies have said. But this is the Father affirming the identity of the Son. And he doesn't just end there. He says, listen to him, which we've talked about so much already. They come down the mountain. Jesus is saying the same things. Let these words sink in. They've heard with their ears, but it hasn't quite made it to their hearts. I was praying over that earlier, that the things that we hear from God's word not just remain in our ears, but make it to our minds that we think about them. Make it to our hearts that it begins to shape how we live and worship King Jesus and how it affects how we interact with those as we seek to be on mission with the Lord. He confirms his identity and he says, listen to him. And to further drive home the point that Jesus is the greater, the greatest, after the cloud goes back up into heaven, it's the disciples and Jesus alone. No Moses, no Elijah, no tents. They don't say anything to anyone about it. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound very gospel-like and evangelistic. Again, grateful that we have multiple gospel accounts. In Matthew and Mark's account, Jesus tells them not to say anything until he's been raised from the dead. They're just following orders. And now we'll start to land the plane with a close. I mentioned earlier several application points along the way, right out of the gate, even the importance of prayer all throughout Luke, the importance of us praying as his people. But the main focus is indeed, as we leave an application point today, the main one isn't so much a doing as it is a knowing. Know that Jesus is who he says he is. The promised Messiah, King Jesus, who one day will return. Now, just a, a quick moment I want to speak into this. We can't just say, well, if the main idea of the text is to know something, that doesn't really give me a lot to do when I leave. Like, you can't just change the meaning of a text because we already know it. So let's be reminded of just because we know something doesn't mean that it's affected the way that we're living through knowing that he is the prophesied about Messiah, the Son of God. It should transform the way we worship him and live here on earth until we meet him in future glory. There are three passages I'd like to turn us to. One thing that I haven't mentioned much today, of all that's going on in this passage, there's something that I haven't really spoken to yet, and this is also a glimpse of the future glory of the coming king. So I'll close with 1 John 3, 2, Romans 8, 16 through 18, and then we're actually gonna hear from Peter himself 2 Peter 2, or 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19, one of the eyewitnesses speaks about the fact that we have something greater now. So listen with me, keeping in mind the future glory that awaits us that this passage points to. 1 John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Although no one this week has been up on a mountain and seen the glory of God revealed in the sun, one day we will get to see that future glory as his children. And it not only says that we shall see him as he is, but we shall be like him. When we've entered into a right relationship with Jesus, we've been gifted the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us, sanctifying us more into the image of the invisible son. And one day we will have those future glorified bodies and be made like him, it says. 
That word transfiguration that we've talked about today, there's a couple other instances in Scripture that it's used in the New Testament. One of them specifically, you won't see this on the slide behind me. Let me just read it for you. 2 Corinthians 3.18, this fits very well. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Continuing on with this idea and pointing towards the future glory that awaits us, Romans 8, 16 through 18, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. We've heard about that, haven't we? In order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Remember back to Peter hearing about Jesus' sufferings and him taking up his cross. This was an encouragement to them, hopefully something they put in the backs of their minds and store up in their hearts to remember in the face of their hardship that these present sufferings, the sufferings of this time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And last but not least, I'd like to read from 2 Peter 1, 16 to 19 and share a few thoughts from, a, from an author and then we'll close in prayer. Read along with me, 2 Peter 1, 16 and 19. Remember, this is the Peter up on the mountain of transfiguration. He's about to talk about that encounter. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Listen to what's said next. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Two things before our closing prayer. Peter speaking about this coming glory. John MacArthur in his study notes says about this coming glory, the kingdom splendor of Jesus revealed at this event, the transfiguration, was intended as a preview of his majesty to be manifested at his second coming. The transfiguration was a glimpse of the glory to be revealed. And there's another really significant part of this passage for those that might be wondering, if I could only have a transfiguration-like moment in my life, how great my faith would be. We know of countless stories in the New Testament where miracles are unfolding and people still don't put their faith in Jesus. But listen to what Peter has to say regarding this prophetic word more fully confirmed. Verse 19, I'll read it again. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. And the last comment I'll make here, MacArthur states regarding this statement. The original arrangement of this sentence in verse 19 supports the interpretation that Peter is ranking scripture over experience. The prophetic word is more complete, more permanent, and more authoritative than the experience of anyone. So again, this past week, I would be surprised if anyone had a mountaintop experience where they saw Jesus' glory revealed. And I would be surprised if that happens later this week for anyone else in here as well. But one day we will get to see that future glory. And until then, we have his word, which we can listen to. As the father told those disciples on top of the mountain, don't just know he's the son of God, listen to him. This should affect the way that we live in light of the truths that Jesus is our crucified savior.